1 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us and do as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and freshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with, any, with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward.' 
If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. 
Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. There are some questions which you might ask and think that the answer that would come back uh, should be short and sweet. And then the person begins to give their response to our question, and we find that it's far more complicated than we imagined. And as they explain it, there are good reasons for that. So uh, if someone asked you, uh, if you were new, sorry, to the, the great English game of cricket, and they asked you the rules of cricket, um, you might expect a, a simple and straightforward answer. But that's not the case, is it? One of the uh, great uh, joys of cricket are the intricacies of the rules that make it so easy to grasp initially, but then uh, so captivating, even over five days. But this week, as we step into uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10, what we find is that, as you see there in verse 1, Paul is addressing his second question that the Corinthians have asked of him. Can we eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? And you might imagine that Paul's answer could be short and sweet. But actually, it's a much fuller response. That was why I asked Joe that we would have read chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now, why is that? Why does Paul want to give them a very full response to this question? Well, it's because Paul has two goals in view as he speaks to them about this question. In the primary instance, he wants to answer the question. (laughs) And he does want to do that because he doesn't want them to be um, uh, uninformed or unclear about this. This matters how they approach this. But also... He wants to teach them key things in leading them through how they come to the right answer to the question. And we shouldn't be frustrated at that. I have a a friend uh, who uh, a couple of years ago said this to me, that, and he's in the world of business, in in an area of business where you think they would want to get to answers as quickly as possible. And he said this, Sometimes the journey you go on to get to the solution is just as important as the answer you reach at the end. And in a fast-paced world that wants quick solutions, 
Well, that's not always best, is it? And sometimes learning how you get to the solution is as important as the final answer. And another reason why it's very important as we think about this as Christians is that's how we build Christian maturity and biblical wisdom into our souls as God's people. The Lord both teaches us and tells us what the answer is to this question through Paul, but also in doing so, teaches us key principles. Now, uh, that does create some of a challenge for us this evening because we're starting to work through Paul's answer to this question across three chapters. Now, um, one of the things really important to remember is that when the letters of the New Testament were sent and delivered to churches, our best understanding is that they were being read uh, publicly in a gathering of the church on one occasion. So we hear Joe say we're going to read three chapters this evening, and we think, oh, that's quite a reading. But actually, when the New Testament churches first received these, these letters of Scripture, they were hearing the whole book. Now, I'm sh- I imagine afterwards they took time to work through the detail. But they heard the whole letter before they considered the detail. And that is why uh, we read chapters 8 to 10. But as Joe um, reassured everyone, our intention is not to cover that all in one week. But as we just step back and think about the three chapters, I think it's helpful to think about what is Paul going to say in summary in answer to their question. So you're not sat there thinking, Matthew, when are we going to get to the answer to the question? And in summary... Uh, Paul's answer is that we should not eat food sacrificed to an idol if that food sacrifice has been connected in some way to pagan idol worship, or if you know it's been, uh, if you've been there in the moment of its sacrifice, so there's idolatry tied up in that. Or if you know it's been sacrificed to an idol when it's presented to you. But if you're there in a home setting and you're given something to eat, you don't need to ask whether it has been sacrificed. It's okay uh, just to eat in that sense. So that's what Paul's going to say. It's not okay to eat food sacrificed to idols if you have been present where it's been connected to idol worship, or if you know it's been sacrificed in idol worship. So that's where he's going. But he'll build his argument over three chapters, and he'll do so something like this. In chapter 8, he will call the church in a number of ways to consider one another and how they think about this question. In chapter 9, he will call the church to consider his example. There in chapter 9. In in chapter 10, at the first part, in the first 13 verses, he will ask them to consider examples from the Old Testament. In the middle of chapter 10, he will ask them to consider the implications of their understanding of the Lord's Supper to this question. And then at the end of chapter 10, he will call them to consider the need to edify and build up others. And all of those elements are going to come together to show them what the answer is but also to teach them to build godly wisdom in showing them how they get there. Now, without that framework, and without seeing where Paul is going, chapter 8 could seem a little confusing. Now, it might seem confusing because you could think that Paul is saying that they may be free to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols 
even if it's being sacrificed in the temple and they're there and they're eating it in that setting because that seems to be what Paul might be talking about uh, when he refers in verse 10 uh, to someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in the idol's temple. And so we might think that Paul is saying in the chapter, end of chapter 8, don't eat it just for the sake of the conscience of those that might be sensitive, whose conscience is weak. Now, I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. It's actually um, easy to think that because a lot of people read this chapter and think it's just like Romans chapter 14. Now, if you know the book of Romans, you know that as Paul comes to Romans 14, he deals with another food issue, but it's the issue of food uh, that is not permitted under the Jewish ceremonial law. And the food laws that the Jews uh, were asked to follow there in the Old Testament. And there Paul says there are disputable matters around Jewish food laws in Romans 14, such that even though in Christ you are free to eat all kinds of foods, you shouldn't eat those foods sometimes for the sake of others. But Paul isn't making the same case here. So this is not a Romans 14 argument. And it's not because, if you notice, the language changes here in 1 Corinthians. In Romans 14, if you know the chapter, Paul talks about the strong and the weak. Now, in this chapter, we had the language of the weak, but no language of the strong. In fact, there was a language of the knowers, you might say. So there's a contrast between the knowers and the weak in 1 Corinthians. And in Romans 14, there's a contrast between the weak and the strong. But, but also, not only does the language change, the issue changes here. Because in 1 Corinthians, we're considering food sacrifice to idols. And in Romans 14, we're considering the Jewish food laws. Here's another reason why it's different. If we jump on in our Bibles, keep your finger in chapter 8 and jump on to chapter 10 and verses 18 to 22, Paul seems to be very clear that they should not be eating idle food because he says that to do so is a participation with demons. So later on in chapter 10, he's going to say it's not okay to do it because it's a participation with demons in some way. Added to that, and here's one more thing. Added to that, as we think about the rest of the teaching of Scripture, the issue of food sacrificed to idols and whether Christians should eat it is addressed elsewhere. And in Revelation chapter 2, there are two occasions in letters to the churches in Revelation where this very issue is picked up, food sacrificed to idols. So in Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 14, we read these words. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice your Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So do you see the link there? He's saying they sinned by eating food sacrificed to idols. So how can Paul say it's okay, we might think, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, and it's not okay, John says, in Revelation chapter 2? It doesn't work, does it? And indeed, if you go on to Revelation 2.20, there's, uh, there we read, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, 
By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So, this is not a Romans 14 situation where it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, but we are to refrain for the sake of a conscience of a weaker brother, though we have a stronger conscience. That's not what's going on here. In fact, the conclusion will be, don't eat food sacrificed to idols if you know that's the case. And Paul is going to build that up a step at a time. And as he does so, we're going to get lots of biblical wisdom to feed our souls that we might be strengthened in what is a wise way to live. So before we get into the way Paul breaks this down in chapter 8, we might have a question. It's the last introduction. It's a long introduction, but I hope it's setting us up for the chapters to come. Why is food sacrifice to idols such a big issue in Corinth? Why spend three chapters on it? Well, eating together, and particularly eating meat together, was tied to the worship of idols, particularly in the ancient world. So there were three different settings in which you might have a meal and be presented with meat that had been sacrificed to idols. If you were in the pagan temple, there were both sacrifices to pagan idols, and then they kind of had side rooms around the temple for feasting. So just as we have uh, side spaces around this main hall, they would have had bigger side spaces, and they would be for feasts, where the sacrifice that had been performed in their temple was then consumed. And it was all part of the worship of the pagan temple. But it didn't just come up there. It happened in the professional guilds uh, where sacrifices and feasts were expectations of membership. So if you wanted to be uh, a silversmith, then you joined a guild. If you wanted to be uh, a well-known carpenter, you joined a guild. And, And the way that you progressed in your career was through your guild membership. And of course, if you want to progress then... The challenge is you've got to be involved in everything that the guild does. So there was a danger there in professional guilds that there were, there were sacrifices to idols and, and meat was eaten as a part of that. But beyond that as well, you've not just got pagan temples and professional guilds, you've also got private homes where people would sacrifice meats to gods and then eat them together, knowingly that what they were doing was performing a kind of uh, worship. So it's a big deal because of the way Corinth is organized. And it's also a big deal for economic reasons, because the reality in the ancient world was that meat was very expensive. It was a delicacy. And the cheapest meat you could buy in the local market had come from the temple sacrifices, because it had already been purchased by the person who was bringing it to sacrifice. So it was sold on a bit cheaper. So it was like buying secondhand. Made it more affordable. So for those reasons, there was this big debate in the church over whether it was right to eat this meat, and they needed help. And so that's why we we can understand why they would say to Paul, what should we do? Please give us uh, divine instruction. And so Paul takes three chapters. Our focus is going to be on chapter 8 this evening. We'll see that he gives three simple commands for us to consider tonight that will have wider application for us as the Lord's people than just two 
the kind of meat that we eat. Much more broadly. First of all, he says, never forget love. In calling them to make wise food choices, he says, never forget love. Here we look down at verses 1 to 3. Just look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3 with me. Because he does something that Paul does quite a lot. He says, now I'm going to talk about this. And then he says, actually, I want to talk a bit about this. And then if you look down at verse 4, he says, oh, I'm going to get back to, to this that you asked me about. But, it, but it's not wasted because this is God speaking through Paul. And he, he diverts a little before he gets to this issue by saying they have neglected something that is so important. And he can tell they've done so because they have, in the way that they have written to him and communicated with him in asking their question, they have forgotten something really critical about the Christian life, which is that we should never forget love. He comes to our heart problem, and they'd forgotten the necessity of love. Now, now we know the Corinthians uh, were a proud and arrogant bunch. We know that because in chapter 4 and verse 6, we get a reference that then you may not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And we know it because of chapter 5 and verse 2, where Paul says, and you are proud. So there's a problem with pride in the Corinthian church. And this further problem of pride is manifested, it's shown to Paul in how they've written to him about their knowledge, what they say is their knowledge versus others. So they says this, we all possess knowledge. That's a quote from what they said to Paul, we think. And this, this idea that they have this knowledge that others don't have demonstrates a kind of haughty spirit that thought of themselves too highly because of all that they knew. Now notice how serious that is. Look down at verse 2. What does Paul say about knowledge? Sorry, middle of, end of verse 1. Knowledge puffs up. Just mere knowledge puffs up. Whether or not that knowledge is true or false, without love, all knowledge is dangerous. Paul says you need love. You need love to govern the use of any knowledge that you have. You need a love that is expressed towards God. That's what he's going to talk about at the start of verse 3. But whoever loves God, and, that, and that's a humility that comes before the Lord in, in bringing it before him, and either a, 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 a knowledge expressed in love towards others. Because you notice there that he says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Love builds up in how you share and you speak what you know. Now, to be absolutely clear, Paul is not opposed to knowledge. I think James picked this up as we were working through the chapter earlier, the the book of 1 Corinthians earlier. We know that because in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant. So the Christian faith is not a faith opposed to knowledge. God does not want us to be ignorant Christians. And in in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, Peter's prayer for the church there is that they would add to their faith knowledge. So knowledge is a good thing. It's a good gift of God. But without love, knowledge, having knowledge, can lead to pride. We've been thinking about swords, haven't we, recently? Having watched the events of yesterday and seeing different swords being carried around and 
moved around in the coronation. And it strikes me that, in many ways, knowledge is like a powerful sword. It needs great skill, other skills, to use it well. You can have the power of the sword, but unless you wield it with other necessary skills and gifts, then it's not right. And we have to be really, really uh, direct with ourselves here to say that some Christians can know a lot theologically, which is a great thing, but they handle that knowledge with a haughty spirit. They look down on others who might know a bit less. And in looking down on them, they are puffed up in their proud hearts. And that's a sin before God. And it hurts others. We should be aiming for humble knowledge that is covered with love. And in fact, that is how we should use all of our gifts that come to us from God. Because without love for God and love for others, any gift that God has given, we, if we don't use that gift with love, then it will make us proud. Calvin has this lovely phrase to say that all of our gifts should be surrounded by and covered by love. And if we think about our age, one of the acceptable sins of our age is to take God's good gifts without love for God and for others and to use those gifts in wrong ways. There are those who excel in particular areas and how sad it is to see that so often they are proud people. People with great gifts of intellect it's not a common thing for them to be humble, is it? People with great skills in leadership, it's often that they're proud. People with great wealth look down on others who don't have it. People with great health claim that they've achieved it themselves and think well of themselves because that's what they have. Is it not in this way that we are seeing just how deeply sin has corrupted our human nature as we see God's good gifts not shown and exercised with love for God and love for others? So whatever gifts you have from God today, whether it's money or leadership or health or wisdom or spiritual insight or knowledge of the scriptures or skills in other ways, those are good things given to you by God. But hold them in humility before your God. They are gifts from him, not your achievements. And use those gifts with love for others. Use them for the good of others. Never forget love. That's the first thing Paul says there in verses 1 to 3. But then he comes on in verses 4 to 6 to say, always apply truth, verses 4 to 6, because we see there the Corinthians got something right. They had seen God's truth, and they were seeking to apply God's truth. And so in verse 4, he returns their original question, because he agrees that compared to the one true God, verse 4, an idol is nothing at all in this world, and... Because there is no God but one. And so in one sense, as they thought about idols and, and what was going on with idols, they were right to say that idols are just hollow statues. They don't have power like the true and living God. They have 
compared to God, they're nothing. And so, verse 5, he speaks of so-called gods who don't have real power. So they had rightly applied this truth to how they thought about the idols. They were applying the truth well. But then Paul says something that I just wanted to just, just dwell upon because it's glorious and wonderful. Because if you look down uh, at verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Do you, do you know what Paul's doing there? Paul, what Paul is doing there is he is quoting and expanding the Shema from the Old Testament. You know the great thing that the um, Jews would say, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, if you want to uh, remind yourself of it or just listen to it as I read it, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what Paul is doing there is he's taking the Shema, this great statement of Jewish monotheism, that there is one God and he is, he is Lord and God. But what does he do? He takes that Shema and he unpacks it to say that the one Lord and one God is both Father and Son. Look at how he does it there in verse 6. We read that the one God, the Father, through whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So, so Paul is saying here that our God and Father is the source of creation and the purpose of all creation to bring him glory. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the means of creation and the sustainer of all creation. And when you see what he's doing here, it's amazing because what he's doing here is he is showing us this tight equality between the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, many would say this is one of the strongest statements of the divinity, the, the godness of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. It's really strong. And we should note that because, and I want to just, just talk about it for a second, that there is a, a common view that people can have about the divinity of Christ that's out there and increasingly common. I was talking to someone just a week or so ago who expressed it that runs like this, that says that the early church leaders invented the truth that Christ was God to strengthen their power and position as leaders. So they made it up. They say, you know, it wasn't there in the scriptures originally. They added it as a new idea into the Bible. And they did that for their own benefit, so that they could claim that they were given power by Christ. Now, this is a really popular view. Uh, it's popular because it fits with a, a wider cultural narrative about the evils of leadership and power. Now, how do we respond to that when people say it? Well, let's see, let's notice that is not what God teaches here. What do we see in the book of 1 Corinthians, one of the earliest letters in the New Testament? We see the Lord Jesus Christ placed alongside the Father in his lordship and divinity. And so, friends, that reassures us because it reminds us that we have not believed the words of men or the ideas of men that have been added to Scripture. We have stood and believed the word of God. 
And in fact, if someone comes and makes this argument to us, what are they doing? Well, they are taking their own ideas and putting them on the Bible rather than taking the Bible as written. So a great question to ask back if someone says, oh, Jesus, Jesus' divinity, that he is God, isn't there in the scriptures? They added it later on, is to say, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? And you know what you find if you do so? You quickly get to the heart of what's going on, which is they have their own ideas that they're putting on the scriptures. Whereas we as God's people are sitting under the word of God and finding what we believe in the scriptures. So, there was a right application of the truth that the Lord alone is God. They were right to say that idols were false gods and false lords. They they shouldn't elevate them. But then they got something wrong. Because they thought that that right truth, that there is only one God, and he is Father, Son, and Spirit, meant that they had freedom and the right to eat idol-sacrificed food in the temple. And they got that wrong because, and here's the third thing, they had forgotten to think about one another, our third point. And here we come to verses 7 to 13. We move quickly through these. Now, later on, Paul will be very clear. They do not have the freedom or right to eat food sacrificed to idols. But before he gets to say that, he wants to think about the question from a different perspective, Because in doing so, they're going to learn an important principle. And the principle is they need to think about each other as the Lord's people. How does he do that? Well, let's just quickly see how he does it. His argument is that that you may think that you can eat food sacrificed to idols, even if you're there and you're involved in one of these feasts in the temple. You may think that's okay. But what if another believer sees you eating... And what if their conscience has told them that that is wrong? They, seeing you eat, might follow your example in eating the food there in the temple. And Paul says, that isn't right. Because in doing so, in following your example, you have led them to defile their conscience, to go against their conscience, which we should never encourage someone to do even though you have exercised what you thought was your right, that exercising of your right has become a stumbling block to them. And here's where it gets really serious. Why is it so serious? He says, and it's really strong language, verse uh, 12, you have sinned against them in this way. Do you see that? Moreover, you have sinned against Christ in that way. Now that should really shock us. But he says it, doesn't he? Look at verse 12. He says, to have done that, you have sinned against them and wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. And then he says, uh, verse 13, if that's the case, it would be better never to eat meat again than to do that. Saying, think about each other. Think about how your actions affect others. And for that reason alone, although he's got much more to say, it's wrong to do so. Now that's a challenging message in our world, isn't it? Because what does our culture say to us? Well, our culture says most people think my actions are my business and as long as they don't harm others, 
I can do what I want, and all I need to think about is me. That's the world in which we swim. (laughs) That's the message that hits us again and again and again through what we read, through what we watch, through what others say, through what we listen to, through what we sing. (laughs) Popular culture, I should say. It's there, isn't it? And what is it? Well, it's, it's individualism gone in, the, in a very, very unhelpful way. And I think if we're really honest, over the last few years, this approach and this spirit in our world has just got even stronger because people for a period of time were turned inward, only caring about themselves and their families in our bubbles in that sense. And the effects are serious. And it means we should be even stronger to say to ourselves, that way of thinking is wrong. My actions are an example to others. I should think about how what I do may affect others. My actions could encourage someone to go against their conscience making them stumble, and so sinning against them. We need to be so careful, friends, that we avoid this kind of individualism when we think about Christian living. Our approach to living the Christian life should be connected, recognizing that we have shared responsibilities towards each other. You know, this afternoon, I read again the membership covenant of the church. And if you're a member of Emmanuel Church, you have uh, read that and you have agreed that this is how we're going to live together as the Lord's people. And there's a line there in the covenant that says that we are going to grow together to maturity in Christ. Grow together to maturity in Christ. And that means the maturity both of ourselves and one another is a shared responsibility. I was challenged, I think, this afternoon that living this out may change our decisions personally about different things. So this morning, James was speaking very helpfully and in a challenging way about the sacrifices we need to make as parents for the sake of our children. But could we not also say, as we think about this passage that we need to think about the sacrifices we make personally for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church family. To sacrifice what we may believe is a freedom or a right for the good of others. Now, I'm not aware of any idle sacrifice food that's for sale in the local supermarkets, but perhaps we could apply this principle to things that we might rightly be free to enjoy but would not do so for the sake of others. So I know of mature Christians who have chosen not to exercise their freedom to drink alcohol because of this principle. Now an immature response to uh, that might say, well I'm free so I always will partake of alcohol. But if you were in an area where alcohol abuse was a real issue, it may be a wise thing not to partake, that you may not lead others into sin in that sense, what would become sin for them. 
There might be other things we need to think about as well. The games that we play might be fine for us. Could they lead others into sin? The things that we watch, could they lead others into sin? The sports that we encourage in our families and in others, are we careful about these things, friends? Because even, and here's the point that Paul is driving home for them, even our Christian freedoms should be moderated by love and concern for other believers. And that's how we express our love for Christ. It's in how we care for one another. So I don't know how you make decisions. Everyone does it differently. But I think lots of people follow perhaps the pros and cons approach. You do that in a big decision? Not seeing any nods. Maybe you do. I don't know. Some do. You know, here's a decision. What would be the good reasons to do it? The pros? What would be the reasons not to do it? And you're just not sure and it's one you've got to think through? Well, can I encourage you on that list perhaps in both pros and cons, to consider the effect on others. Not just me, my marriage, my family, my home. Not just me, others. Because that's what we're called to, friends. Because God has made us a people together. As Joe has so helpfully reminded us as he's led and he's prayed and as we've sung. And so as we make decisions about all kinds of things. Let's put these principles into practice. Let's be wise. Let's never forget love. Every gift you have from God. Hold it in love. Use it in love. Let's never forget to apply truth to our circumstances. The Corinthians were good in doing that. And let us not forget one another because God has connected us together.